0: Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will not fear. But I am afraid. The shadow cast upon me in this valley is daunting. The anxiety is haunting this lingering feeling of doom is weighing upon me. They say that when you've hit rock bottom, the only way is up, but honestly, the weight on my shoulders feels like too much. The fear of my situation is too real. The shadow cast over me is too dark. In this hour of darkness, I must stand up and take another step. Realizing that the shadow has no power over me, it cannot stop me from reaching your life. I am a child of God, and I will not fear.
1: Good morning, everyone. Before we uh, jump into the last message of our mini-series, Overcoming Anxiety and Fear, I want us to take a moment and pray for uh, the nation of Israel and what they're going through right now, which is truly a fearful and anxious time. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this day and uh, we want to lift up Israel to you, Lord. Uh, your word commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, Lord, we lift up um, people on all sides, Israelis, Palestinians alike, O oh God. And pray, Father, for peace. Pray for an end to violence. Pray that those who have shown aggression would cease Uh, Their attack and we pray for wisdom Lord for Israel and its leaders But God we know that ultimately the only answer for not only the Middle East But for the United States and every country is to bow before the feet of Jesus And I pray Lord that that would start in our lives God have mercy today to Those who are caught in the middle of all of this over in the Middle East right now, Lord. Men and women and and children, Lord, who want no part of war on either side. God, have mercy on them and uh, see us through this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you are probably wondering why that box was brought out, and that's because I had a choice today. I could either dig a hole in the worship center to uh, symbolize a pit, um, but I didn't think that would go over very well. Uh, or we can use this box and pretend it resembles a pit, kind of. And the question I want to ask you has is, have you ever been in a literal pit, like in the ground, in a, in a um, trench, or uh, a dugout kind of an area? When I was thinking about that, I thought about a guy that I knew growing up, he was a friend of my dad's, and. Uh, one day, he was working in a uh, trench, very deep down underneath, and um, laying some pipes. It's, I can get a feel for what that was like. This I'm claustrophobic, by the way, and this just this makes me feel uncomfortable. But um, while he was working down there, the, the walls caved in on him and buried him. And so the other workers worked furiously to try to get him out, and they finally did. And fortunately, he survived, but uh, he was never the same again. Uh, anxious, um, disturbed, uh, because of being buried alive, and I can't imagine that. I don't even, I don't like the thought, the idea of that ever happening to me or to anybody else. But you don't have to be in an actual physical pit uh, and and covered by dirt to feel overwhelmed. A lot of us know what it's like, and some of you are actually right now in what I would call, you know, an emotional pit. Uh, A pit where you feel overwhelmed and covered by all kinds of situations that are, that are happening in your life, and it has you fearful. It has you feeling kind of anxious. Um, Chapman University out in California does this annual um, survey of adults in America to find out what their, you know, their top fears are, and they came out with the um, top fears for 2022 among American adults. Obviously, this year's not over, so we'll see what they are uh, after this year is over. But let me just share with you what they came up with. This is for 2022. Uh, Number one, fear. 62.1% Americans fear corrupt government officials. Well, we're past that, aren't we? (laughs) uh, 60.2% fear a loved one becoming seriously ill. 59.6%, and this is because of the Ukraine situation, fear Russia using nuclear weapons. 58% 58% Americans uh, fear that people that they love are going to die. 56% of American adults fear the U.S. becoming involved in another world war. 54.5% fear uh, the pollution of drinking water. 53.7% uh, fear not having enough money for the future. Another 53.7% fear economic, financial or collapse. 52.5% fear the pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes and 51.5% fear of biological warfare. Now, I don't know if any of that resonated with you, if you would say, oh, you named one of my fears, or if you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I mean, that, I'm concerned about that, but that's not really my fear. Well, then what, what would be if, if you have one, what would your fear be? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that, that causes you to be anxious? If you've noticed, I've been using uh, last weekend, and this way, weekend, fear and anxiety, and, you know, sometimes that raises the question, what, you know, is there a difference between fear and anxiety? And the answer is yes. But think about it this way. Think of it as a coin, and fear and anxiety are just two sides of, of the same coin. So let me give you a couple examples. Imagine that your car stalls out on railroad tracks, and you hear the whistle, and you see the train coming. That's fear. I mean, you panic inside, your heart rate goes way up, your blood pressure goes way up, I mean, your mental acuity, you're just like tuned in, I got to get this car off the tracks or I'm going to die. Anxiety is you get the car off the tracks, you pull it just in time before the train comes through, you pull it over to the side of the road and you're white knuckled on the steering wheel. You are sweating profusely. Your heart is beating fast, not as fast as it was on the tracks. Your legs are shaking, and you are reliving what just happened over and over and over again. Now, that's kind of graphic, so let me lighten it up a little bit, all right? Uh, Fear is... A Midwest thunderstorm, right, that comes rolling through in the middle of the night and there's flashes of lightning and clashes of thunder and wind howling and maybe sirens going off and then it blows through and it's gone. Anxiety is day after day after day of 40 degree weather, low hanging gray clouds and constant drizzle and pretty soon mildew starts to form. The question is, is fear and anxiety always such a bad thing? The answer is no. Sometimes fear and anxiety can actually be a good thing. It's a good thing in my life. It's been a good thing in my life several different times. But one of the first times I vividly remember is when I was a child on the mission field in Papua New Guinea. We were out uh, playing on a, on a soccer field. I write about this in my, in my book on, uh, called Reset. And I think I may have told the story already, but I'm going to tell it again because it's so real for me. But I was playing out on this uh, airfield that my dad created, and uh, we made it into a soccer field uh, because the MAF Missionary Aviation Fellowship plane only landed maybe once a month. So we're out there playing. It's surrounded by this tall, what's called kunai grass, and I'm with some other Native boys. We're having a fine time. And all of a sudden, the boys took off running. And I'm like, well, why did you guys, you know, why, why have you left me here? And they all scream and they all point. And I still remember looking over into the tall grass. And there is a Native with a machete in his hand. He's stalking me. And I felt, uh, I felt the fear, the panic rise up from the bottom of my heels to the tip of my head. And I took off running and screaming at the, at the top of my voice. It was about a quarter-mile run uh, down through an old dirt path through some more grass to the mission state, station. I still remember it. I still can feel it if I really think about it. And I remember wanting to look behind me as I was running, but I was afraid if I looked behind me, my head would come rolling off. I just ran and screamed and ran and screamed and finally made it into the mission station And um, I don't know, at some point, he gave up the chase. And my dad and some other men went out and found him and arrested him and sent him out to the coast of Port Moresby where the Australian officials took over. I am so thankful for fear and anxiety at that point in my life. How about you? If you had some points in your life where you're like, man, I'm glad fear and anxiety worked because it got me out of a difficult or dangerous situation. But just as fear and anxiety can be a good thing in your life, fear and anxiety can be a really bad thing in your life, too. It can be debilitating. It can be paralyzing when it's unwarranted, when there's really no cause or reason for it. It can become really unhealthy. It's kind of like when, it would be like if you got in your car, you started the engine, and you just pushed the accelerator all the way down, and you kept it there. And you keep doing that, that poor engine eventually is going to fail and run out of gas, right? If you do that, to yourself emotionally and and psychologically and physically and spiritually, if you just push the pedal all the way down and you're in a constant state of fear and anxiety, it has terrible consequences for you. I, I decided this week to look up what some of them were. I stopped counting after 12. I mean, it's everything from insomnia to upset stomach to ulcers to heart attacks to cancer. I mean, so many repercussions when we are constantly fearful and constantly anxious, which is so descriptive of our world today. It's so descriptive of our world today. And that's not how God wants us to be. That's not how he's rewired us as believers, as his followers to be. And yet so many of us are, which then raises the question, how do you get out of that? How do you climb out of that pit, so to speak? How do you get in a healthy place? How do you get in a good place? Well, we're gonna ask David in Psalm 3, so if you want to follow along the Pew Bible, it's about the middle of your Bible, you can open up to Psalm 3, and then we're going to look at one verse in Genesis chapter 15 as well, and so I'm going to ask Pastor Dan if he'll come up, let's all stand for the reading of God's word uh, out of respect, and let's hear what David says we need to do to climb out of the pit of fear and anxiety, Dan.
2: Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear. Though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And then from Genesis 15:1, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Dan, you to me seated. So, I want—I
1: don't know if you caught it or not—but when David prays to God, he says, "But your Lord are my shield." When God speaks to Abraham, the last passage you just read, God says to Abraham, "Don't be afraid. I am your shield." We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But I need to build the context for Psalm 3 that we just read. Psalm 3 is is written by David, and it's in a very terrible time in his life when he honestly finds himself in a pit of fear and anxiety. His own son, Absalom, is trying to kill him to take over the throne and become the new king of Israel, which begs the question, why? Why Why would Absalom want to kill his father? I mean, how, does, how does that happen? And to understand that, you got to kind of go back in the story and you got to go to 1 Samuel that talks about kind of the background to all of this. In the early chapters of 1 Samuel, we hear about the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And Saul had a problem his ego. I know that was only an ancient problem, none of a struggle with pride anymore, but they did back in those days. And um, And Saul could never admit he was wrong. He could never say he was sorry. Whenever he got challenged on something that he had done wrong, he'd always blame somebody else. But it was like never his fault. And so God abandons Saul. Now remember that. And God chooses David. And David starts out so well. Remember Goliath, the whole story? He starts out so well, does great. Becomes a good king. And then he also gets bitten by the ego bug, a bug, and becomes filled with pride. And he won't, he won't listen. He won't, he won't do what is right. He somehow gets his ego and thinks that because he's king, he can have anything he wants and be whatever he wants to be. And you know the, you know the sad story, right? He could kill a giant called Goliath, but he couldn't, he couldn't kill the lust in his own life. And One day, while his armies were out fighting, his captains and, you know, his generals were out on the field fighting, he stayed back home, and he saw this beautiful woman called Bathsheba, and uh, he calls for her to be brought to his palace, to his penthouse. He knows, he's told that she is the wife of one of David's great soldiers who's out in the battle, but David doesn't care. He sleeps with her and and, uh, sends her back home and gets word back from her that she's pregnant, and David, you're the father, and... So David, you know, right away thinks, what should I do? And he calls for her husband to come back from the uh, front lines and encourages him to go and sleep with his wife, but he refuses to do it. He says, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife when all these other guys I'm fighting with can't go home and do it, you know, can't go home and be with their, their spouse. So I'm staying, I'm just going to sleep here in the palace till you send me back to the battle. So David finally, you know, gives up. What am I going to do? He sends it back to battle, but with a, with a message, and it's sealed so nobody else can read it, but it's, it's meant to be given to the general, and, and it's given to Joab, who's the general, and when Joab opens it up, because it's handed to him by, by Uriah, he opens it up, it says, uh, leave, leave Uriah and a few soldiers at the front of the battle, and withdraw from them so they're all killed by the enemy. And so Joab obeys the king, and that's what happens. And so then the news comes back, and David acts like he's all sad, and he takes Bathsheba, right, and marries her. And so now everybody thinks that, you know, he's a great guy, and he took this woman, and the child must be his, right? Because they, they got married. And then, he, and then he gets found out. Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him and says, look what you've done. You have sinned against God. You've done this horrible thing. And unlike Saul, so let's give credit, unlike Saul, David repents. He's sorry for what he's done. He loses a child, by the way, but he's sorry for what he's done. Now, I wish that was the only problem David had, although that's a pretty significant issue. But the problems multiply in his life because of his ego. And one of the things that he does is he marries different women. So he has all these wives and, and concubines. And he has children by all these different wives. And one of the children he has grows up to be a young man named Amnon. And Amnon... Uh, has this crush on the daughter of David from a different wife, a half-sister. And so Amnon you know, wants a relationship with her, but she's not interested, so he, he rapes her. And David finds out about it, and he's furious about what Amnon has done with his half-sister. But David never does a thing about it. Well, that half-sister has a full-blooded brother whose name is Absalom. And Absalom sees what his dad won't do. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands and kills his brother Amnon. Now that's all the background to say it didn't take a whole lot for Absalom to convince the army and convince the the Israelites to follow him in a coup to depose his father and make him the new ruler. I mean, why would you want to support a man who was an adulterer and a murderer, a horrible father? He allowed injustice in his family to just exist and didn't do anything about it. He's a terrible moral example for our nation. Make me his king. And David finds himself now on the run like a wild animal in the pit of fear and anxiety. Look what he says in verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. Why? Because just like God abandoned Saul, here's what could have been said. God has now abandoned David. Can you imagine if social media had existed in those days? It would have been all over very quickly. So how does, how does David get out of this pit? Well, there are several steps that are involved, and they're very simple. And you and I can follow the same steps. Because, look, I hope and pray none of us have succumbed to the kinds of sins that, that, that David did. But all of us have things in our life. All of us have issues in our life, whether it's financial, relational, marital, career physical, whatever it is, that have just barreled over us, and we feel like we have all these enemies around us. They may be emotions. They may be real. They may not be real, but they're all pressing on us. How do we get out of that? First one. It's so easy, all right? It's so easy. It's, it's right in verse 3. David says, but you, O Lord. This is really profound, so write this down. You have to have a but in your life. You say, well, I have one. I was born with one. That's not what I mean. You have to have a different kind of but in your life. You have to have, have, as a follower of Christ, you and I have this ability to say, here's my circumstances, but is a contrast, okay? But given my circumstances, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord. See, what happens to a lot of us is all we can focus on are our circumstances, our situation, especially when it's intense, especially when it's overwhelming. It's like we forget about God. We think about God, we remember God when everything's going well, but when things go bad, it's like we become temporary atheists and we forget God is there. So the first step of getting out of the pit is to simply say, but now I know I look like a boiled egg, but you know, you just get kind of up a little bit, right? But here's my situation, here's my circumstance, but you oh Lord. Let me ask you a question right now. Can you say that? I mean, obviously we could all say it, but can you say it with faith, can you say it with your heart? But you oh Lord. Let's let's just at least say it together, ready? but you oh lord all right second step to get out of the pit is to remember you are not in the pit alone god is with you in the pit and he's going to deliver you you are not in the pit alone i am not in the pit alone god is with me and he will deliver me you know that story in the bible when daniel's placed in a pit with the lions And the next morning when the king comes to see what on earth has happened, has he been eaten alive or has God spare him, what does Daniel say to him? In essence, what Daniel says to him is, God was with me in the pit, kept the lion's mouth shut. We are not alone. As a follower of Christ, we are not alone in our situation. God is with us. Look what David says. He says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. He's saying, God, you, you are a shield. Now, the shield he's talking about is a long shield that they would use in those days, like a door, not as heavy, but like a door. And it would kind of curve and make its way around, especially before even the times of the Romans, they had these shields. And if you didn't have armor on, you needed a shield like that to protect you. Now, let me ask you a question. For a soldier, when is the shield most useful? when he's advancing against the enemy or when he's running from the enemy. Obviously, when he's advancing, if you're running, your backside is open, right? And you're, and you're going to be killed. The problem, however, is when you have a shield and you're advancing, you have a shield and you're advancing against an enemy and the enemy is throwing adversity at you, right? And that's why Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, obedience, all right, obedience is... Always forward. To be obedient to God is to be going forward. Oftentimes, it gets the grain of the culture. And when you decide to go forward with God, you're going to have adversity, you're going to have blowback, you're going to have pushback. And you got to remember that you're not going alone, you're going with God. Paul picks this up in Ephesians 6 when he says put on the armor of God and one of the items he says is take up the shield of faith and he's referring to this long shield he says you need that shield of faith to absorb the fiery missiles the fiery darts that Satan is firing at you the adversity that you get for making a stand for Christ and living by the truth and sharing Christ with others David put it this way in Psalm 23 he says even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death what? I fear no evil, why? For thou art with me, right? So first, you know, first step is, but you, O oh Lord, right? Second step is what? Second step is, I'm not in this pit alone. God is a shield around me. No matter what I go through, even if I have to go through death, because having God in your life doesn't mean you're not going to suffer, doesn't mean you're not going to have pain. But even if I go through suffering and pain, even death itself I can, I can become okay because, because you are with me. Thou art with me. All right, third step to get ourselves out of the pit, so to speak, is relocate your glory. Relocate your glory. Look what he says in the passage. He says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, and then he says, my glory. Now, you got to add the contrast there, because in essence, what he's saying is, but Lord, you are my shield, but Lord, you are my glory. Now, if I say, but you are my glory, that, meant, that means that before you were my glory, something else was my glory. And that's what happened to David. It's, it's like he misplaced his glory. So well, what does glory mean? Glory means weight. It comes to the Hebrew word "kabad. Kabod. So in other words, what David is saying is, I misplaced my kabad. I misplaced my weight. I put my weight in my position. I put my weight in my power. I put my weight in my fame. I put my weight in my looks. I put my weight in my capacity to have whatever I wanted. But, but, I'm, I'm relocating my weight. Look what he says. I'm relocating my weight to your weight, God. I'm putting, I'm resting myself in who you are all of us all of us have weight all of us have a need for value all of us have a need for a sense of worth all of us have a need for a sense of acceptance and love and appreciation we all long for that and so we go looking for all of that right and you know some of us find it in our career you know, I'm a I'm a professional. I'm a dentist, or I'm a you know I'm a lawyer, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a you know I'm a pastor, or I'm a I'm a homemaker, or I'm a businesswoman, or I'm a pilot, or you know whatever it is. And that's that's where we gain all our identity and our sense of worth and value. Or I'm a student, or I'm an athlete, or I'm really smart. Well, what happens when that stuff when that stuff doesn't work anymore? What happens when you lose your job, or you get a lawsuit filed against you? Or you don't get the right grade, you don't make it into the right school, what happens then? Some of us put our weight in our health. We're healthy, right? We've worked out all our lives. What happens when you when you get the test back and you've got cancer? Or what happens when your when your health starts to fail you? Some of us put our weight in our relationships our friends, our spouse, our parents, our kids. Well, what happens when a friend forsakes you or a spouse dies or leaves you and you feel all alone? Some of us put our weight in our, in our money, our finances. Well, what happens when you lose your job or you lose your finances and they're not there? You know, we said last week, when we were talking about this, we said when you're feeling anxiety, when you're feeling fear, think of it as smoke, trace it down to the fire. What is the cause of your anxiety? We said more often than not, the cause of that is you took something good, job, money, relationships, whatever it is, and you put it on the table and you said, this is my one thing. This is what I'm betting my life on. We said anxiety is directly related to a vulnerability of that one thing. And we said we got to take everything off the table and and make God our one thing because God never breaks God never leaves God never disappoints you may be disappointed in God sometimes but God himself in his sovereignty never disappoints he's got it all taken care of you gotta relocate your glory so the next step out of the pit so to speak is not only say but you O Lord but you are Lord of my shield but guess what but you are my glory. I'm gonna rest my weight, my faith, my trust, my my sense of identity, my sense of value in you. So when you think about your life right now, would you say, would you say that's true of you? Would you say that, that my weight is squarely on him? I'm just resting my weight in him and him alone. It's kind of funny. I was reading an article, I was telling Cal about it this week, about why so many pastors. Overstay their tenure in churches. It was funny because it said pastors in their 60s (laughs) Why do they overstay their tenure and the answer was because they had nothing else to live for? but showing up and pastoring the church I love pastoring this church. I've had some people come and say to me, but you know, you're gonna retire and you're gonna do other things on behalf of Wooddale Church, but you're not gonna be a senior pastor anymore after 40 plus years. What's that gonna be like? Listen, I made up my mind a really long time ago that my identity, my worth, and my value is not based on my job or my title. It is based on my relationship with Christ. And I can be anywhere, anytime, and be in relationship with him and serving him. How about you? How about you? Last step. And we're going to get out of this pit. Kind of. Because if I really get out of the pit, I'll fall and get hurt. But the last step, and right? and this is, this is a weird step, okay? You ready for this? But the last step is know that God is proud of you. It just feels weird, doesn't it? But did you notice what David said? He says, but you, Lord, are shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head, or the one who lifts my head high. If you lift your own head high, you ever see people like that? I can think of politicians like that. Lift their head up high. What is that a sign of? Tell me, what is a sign of? Pride, right? But if somebody else takes your head because it's down and they lift it up, that's a sign of humility my head was down but god lifts my head up david says you know i had my own head lifted up i was so proud i was so arrogant i confess my sin i'm a broken man i feel like i'm trapped right now but you, O oh Lord, you're with me in this, O oh Lord. I, I've relocated my glory to you, and God, I know you are the lifter of my head. And I think, I think he was thinking about this passage over here in Genesis chapter 15, verse one, when God says to Abraham, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield. What is that, you say, what, okay, what does that all mean? Well, let's talk about what God said to Abraham quickly. When God spoke those words to Abraham, he had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to multiply his descendants like the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. He was going to give him that land that we call Israel today. And in Genesis 17, that he would, he would, listen, bless all the nations through Abraham and his family, which is a clear reference to the Messiah who would come and die for the sins of the whole world. And in verse 8 of Genesis 15, Abraham says, but how do I know you're going to do that? And God says, I'll show you how. Let's make a covenant. And God asks Abraham to do something that people back then did when they made contracts. God uses the same idea so that Abraham will understand. Back in those days, if I made a contract with Kyle, and Kyle had an agreement back with me, in those days, we would go out and we would get several animals and we would, we would literally split them in two and lay them uh, opposite of each other, the, the sides opposite of each other, creating a path. Then I would walk through that path and I would say, Kyle, I promise you X, Y, and Z. Then Kyle would walk through the path and he would say, Dale, I promise you X, Y, and Z. Well, what was that all about, walking between these animals that we just cut up together and split apart? Well, what we're in essence saying to each other is, Kyle, if I don't keep my word to you, may what was done to these animals be done to me. And Kyle would say, Dale, if I don't keep my word to you, what's been done to these animals, may it be done unto me. You know, if we ratified more contracts that way these days, there would be a lot less lawsuits. It'd be a lot less issues, wouldn't there? Now, it was a serious deal. So God tells Abraham, go get a ram, go get a heifer, go get a goat, go get some birds, split them, create the, you know, split them in half, create the little pathway, and that night, if you read the chapter, you read it on your own later on, chapter 15 of Genesis, God comes between the animals that have been slaughtered, and he says to Abraham, I promise you these things. In essence, what God is saying is, if I don't keep my word to you, Abraham, may what's been done to those animals be done to me. But what's fascinating in that story is that God never asks Abraham to walk through and make a covenant with him. Do you know why? Because God knows Abraham and his descendants won't keep it. They won't keep it. They're going to fail over and over again. And what's true about them is true about you and me. It's impossible for us to make a covenant with God and to keep the covenant because we're all sinners. Like David was, like Abraham was, like everybody else was. But isn't it fascinating that God sent his son Jesus and what Jesus did is Jesus came and he died the death. We should have died like those animals. His life in essence was split apart. He took up The punishment for our sins, he took up the wages of our inability to keep our promises to God, and he died our death for us. And you know how God looks at you and me now because of what Christ has done? He looks at you and me as though we walked through it, kept, made the promise, and have kept it our whole life. David and Abraham would not have understood the fullness of this. But what David is banking on here is that when God makes a promise to forgive, God keeps that promise. And David, you know, David can say by faith, I know I've been forgiven. I know I've been washed by God. I know I've been cleansed. And I know, I know that God in his grace is proud of me. Because it has nothing to do with the way I used to be. Otherwise, how could God ever be proud of David? How could God ever be proud of you? How could God ever be proud of me? The way God is proud of us is based on what Christ has done for us. And he sees us as though we had never sinned. So, how do I get out of the pit? It starts by saying, but you, O oh Lord. And then it moves into, are my shield. I'm not alone in this. I've relocated my glory to you. And God, you are of me, it has nothing to do with me. To the degree that you and I can believe that, to the degree that we can put our faith in that, and honestly take that as truth for us, to that degree we will know peace in our life no matter what happens to our lives. If you honestly believe that about God, nothing else really matters. Fear doesn't matter, anxiety doesn't matter, and I've got it made. I just have been left here to honor and glorify him and be his witness no matter what my circumstances are. I have peace with him. Do you have peace with the Lord today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, some of us are in a pit of fear and anxiety right now. It's just overwhelming us. We just feel undone by by what's happened to us, whether it's of our making or it has nothing to do with us. It's just living in this sinful world. And God, we've forgotten about our relationship with you, we ask you to forgive us. Help us to remember, but you, O Lord, are my shield, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. In Jesus' name.